847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode I focus on music composed for film and television, uh, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's career, or by way of interviews with guests, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. On this episode, I'm joined by Stuart Balcom, who is a talented composer for films, documentaries, the concert stage, and for TV. One example being the critically acclaimed and hugely popular uh, Batman the Animated Series from the 90s, uh, which is a show near dear to my heart. Uh, also, the, the music is some of my, my most favorite, um, and it's one of the topics that uh, I will be discussing with him. Stuart Balcom is kind of a renaissance man in the industry. Uh, as in addition to being a composer, he also has a long history as a notable orchestrator on countless projects for composers such as Randy Edelman, Nicholas Pike, and Michael Kamen. Uh, as well as also being a well-renowned copyist at Universal for many years. In addition, he also publishes books under Amphora Editions, uh, one of which concerns the topic of movie music, and he is here to talk about this book, uh, that being Music to My Years, Life and Love Between the Notes, a memoir written by Artie Kane. Artie Kane is uh, also a famed composer, musician, and uh, conductor in Hollywood for decades. Welcome to the show today, Stuart. Thank you. Good to be here. Absolutely. Thanks for making the time. So for the book, um, so this, the book, uh, it comes from your uh, publishing company. Is that Amphora Editions? Is that correct? Yes. Yes. So how did that come about with, uh, the, the, with Artie Kane um, writing his, his memoirs, I guess? How did that project uh, happen? I've known Artie for many years. Uh, his wife, Joanne Kane, for many more years. Uh, she was the head copyist over at uh, 20th Century Fox. Okay. Head, head music uh, library. Well, she was the head of the music library. She the head copyist. And I was her counterpart over at Universal Studios for many years. Okay. So on the basis of that, I, I worked on probably over 500, 600 films. Wow. Uh, you know, all the Back of the Futures, uh, all the TV shows like Magnum and, you know, uh, Simon and Simon, Murder, She Wrote, et cetera, That's... et cetera. And so we've also traded crews over the years when we, one was busy and the other wasn't. Uh, we'd swap part okay. of our crew. And so I've known Joanne for many years. And that's, you said, in the copyist, uh, yes. as far as being a copyist. So um, for anyone who's listening who doesn't know exactly, what, uh, what would that job entail? Uh, a copyist is a full-blown musician. Uh, it has to know the ranges and transpositions for every instrument. And we would transcribe the parts in the old days by hand with a pen and ink hmm. from the scores and write individual parts for each instrument. So the composer's score, conductor's score, has the whole information there, all the instruments from woodwinds to brass, the percussion, pianos, harp, strings on down. And the copyist's job is to transcribe flute one and make a part for that player on his music stand. Mm -hmm. Flute two, flute three, oboe one, two, three, et cetera, et cetera. And as I said, in the old days, that was done by hand with pen and ink. Much like the the uh, Benedictine monks back in the unlit cold <laughs> monasteries of Italy would do those uh, transcribed, those what, uh, illuminated Bibles. Um, Painstaking work. Oh, bone crushing work. 
and then the computer came along and the software got better. Right. Uh, we migrated to that. Okay. But the process was still the same. Um, taking the notes from the score and putting them onto a part. Okay. By playing it in with a music keyboard and uh, adjusting for values and such as that. So as I said, I've known Joanne Kane for many years. And she called me one day about Artie's book. He had written this memoir. So he had already penned his, his memoirs. Yes. Um, yes. And they were looking for a publisher. And she had tried. It's very hard for a first-time author to get a book deal. Yeah, it's, I can it's imagine. extremely hard. <laughs> and uh, so I, I offered to do it. Uh, she, she was told by many other people who she had contacted that it would be at least a year before they would consider it. Hmm. And especially when you go with a publisher, it's pretty much in their hands. You lose a lot of control. They have their design team, their editors, and they package the book however they want. And Joanne had a very specific vision for the book and clear down to the, the uh, quality of paper, for example. Oh, wow. And as you know, the paper is really beautiful. It, it's, yeah. It's, uh, it's a heavy book. It is. It's a, it's a coded paper that uh, the words just pop off the page. It's very readable. And so I offered to publish it, and which I did. And had you published, uh, you had published other... Well, before M4 that? Editions got started uh, in, in an odd way. My mother has written five books. Uh, she's no longer living. Uh, two books on uh, Russian artists. Huh. At the time that they were written, each artist was relatively unknown, um, but were really making uh, strides in the art world. One was Nikolai Fashin, and the other was Sergei Bongart. Uh, Fashion died in the 50s. Bongart died in the 80s, I think. Um, her books became absolute bestsellers wow. in the art world, her fine art books. Huh. And she increased the value of those works, the paintings. She put at least one or two, sometimes more decimals, wow. on those, those paintings. Wow. Which... Um, it, all it takes is sometimes is a book, you know. Yeah, to hit that level and to get exposed and, yeah. After she died, I took over the remaining stock mm -hmm. of, from her publishing company and formed N4 Editions. So I, through the family, had, had created a publishing company. And then Artie's book came along. Already and, uh, ready Ready and to go. It was, it was amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's um, pretty extensive. I mean, it covers, you know, all this oh, yes. time from, you know, birth in, in Ohio. And, um, and, and uh, you know, I had mentioned on a previous episode, just in terms of giving it a little bit of sort of, for any of my listeners, uh, background on Artie Kane, for anyone who missed that, basically, uh, he was a kind of a prodigy, a piano prodigy. Oh, yes. Um, and then he developed his, his, you know, his skills further playing, you know, in all sorts of live shows on the East Coast and in New York. And I think it was like sort of a holiday on ice yes. kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and then like played and then moved out here, played session on uh, for different pop artists of the day and then moved into film and TV. Mm -hmm. So it, it's a real varied career. Yeah, he's done it all. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and what I what was interesting to me because I uh, and I mentioned this when I was talking about the book on an earlier episode, I recognized his name from all these credits. So I would, you know, I have tons and tons of soundtrack albums as you might actually see behind me, um, and I would read all the credits for the musicians, and I would read, oh, Artie Kane, piano, 
And then eventually I'd start reading Artie Kane Conductor. Um, and then I would see different uh, TV shows, you know, Wonder Woman, Love Boat, things like that, Artie Kane Composer. Artie Kane is all over the place. So when that book came out, I'm like, wow, I think it's so great to have a book about that, about his perspective on the industry from sure. inside the orchestra, really, in front, I guess, and also in front in terms of it at the podium. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's a yeah. fascinating, it's a fa what were the, I guess for you, what were the revelations for you reading his his memoirs uh, as far as his his stories? I think it was the extent of his his musicianship. Okay. Primarily, I, I knew Artie, as I said, and had seen him in many sessions for years all over town, the biggest orchestras, the biggest films, um, uh, playing and conducting. Uh, and he was a conductor for many of the projects at Universal that we worked on, for, okay. for Danny Elfman, for example. Right. Um, but getting to really know the extent of his musicianship was, was I think, a plus for me. Uh, clear back to when he was a kid and how yeah. he learned and he could virtually play anything yeah and as you know that uh, out here we have some of the finest musicians in the world they have to perform flawlessly sometimes on one take never yeah. having seen it it's the last it's the 11th hour literally <laughs> and they've got four minutes to record a four minute cue let's say <laughs> and it just came in it was just finished hot off the press boom on the stands downbeat and they have to perform i witnessed that situation many times at universal wow and Artie was the kind of guy who could do that he could he could nail the notes and then and, and it's just phenomenal to me how they can do that and so seeing all re, or reading about all of his experiences uh the, the his his having to adapt to the different acts their different needs uh from sonia henny to to milton burl to all of these mm -hmm. different people and really just rise to the top and nail it yeah it was, it was very interesting to me to know that much more about him and i was interesting to read the story about him and frank sinatra and him playing organ yeah, on yeah. Uh, strangers in the night yeah, album same. and it's just so funny because like i mean my father was a huge sinatra fan so it's one of those things where like i heard that album all the time mm. as a kid and uh but uh, it just it's just and he seemed really happy to have been involved in that project as well oh sure yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so I was fascinated to see, because, you know, there, there, there are definitely, you know, there's more books being published about film music, but a lot of times it's the overall art, and it's rare that it's about a specific composer, and, 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 and less so as far as a session player who's also a composer-conductor. So it's a real, I, it's, a, it's a great thing that you've, you know, published his memoirs. I think it's a really great thing to learn more about, you know, his, you know, his insight. 
Well, a memoir is always going to give you a lot more information than someone writing about the person. Yeah. Um, to some degree, and many times to a great degree. In, in Artie's case, he didn't whitewash anything. No, um, it's very he had, uh, honest and... He talks about uh, the when he butts heads with people. Uh, he talks about uh, his eight wives yeah. you know, and his girlfriends and, and, and the uh, trauma that he went through as a result of all of that. And he, he rose th- through all that and... and uh, uh, of course, meeting Joanne was, yeah. uh, saved him big time, and uh, he, uh, he, I think he flourished. Yeah, the, the, it's a real personal journey in the story, and it's and and you really kind of hit you 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 kind of watch him, you know, sort of you know, like you said, go through some of these traumatic situations, and and really kind of learn about himself over the years, and then hit that point with meeting Joanne, and mm-hmm. and and realizing, you know, you know, just I guess how to live a better life, you know, and how she helped him. And she really did kind of, you know, save him in that regard. Yeah. I thought that was fascinating because it was so uh, honest and raw. Yeah. Uh, he, <laughs> and funny, oh, but he's yeah. also really oh, yeah. funny. He's a hilarious guy. Yes. <laughs> That's what I thought yeah. was great. It's, it's funny. It's raw. Uh, I was surprised at turns uh, about how, how honest uh, he was. I, I liked, you know, reading about certain uh, things, other composers that he had learned from, whether it was Jerry Goldsmith or Elmer Bernstein or, or Mancini, and even some of the little things, like who the agents were favoring, you know, mm-hmm. at different times. I, fo- I found that fascinating as well. Well, the world loves a story, and there's all kinds of stories. But when the story is personal, it's, it, it, there's something different about that. There's, it's, it's magnetic. To me, when I read a story about something and it's uh, factual and it's listing events and happenstances, and uh, that's one thing. But when it's personal, when I get inside the person and I'm almost experiencing their emotions uh, on a gut yeah. level, it really makes it, it puts it into a, another level for me, way big. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, and then, so that, that's what happened with Artie's book with me. Um, and, and whether or not I knew him didn't this was I, mean, I could read it purely as an observer in a sense mm-hmm. because I wasn't there for most of the book for the what happened in the book yeah um, I was there on the scene in the last part of the book um, but all during his composing days I didn't know Artie then when yeah. he was writing scores for yeah. example uh, for Remington Steel and Wonder Woman yeah and Love Boat um, I knew him much later than that so I was uh, uh, kind of a casual observer on the sidelines, really getting inside of what made him tick and learn about all of this very personal stuff, which affected his work career as well, which yeah. affected his personal life too. It goes back and forth. I know it well, having been in Hollywood since 1978. I mean, it, 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 it can be a destructive town. You know, the, yeah. the industry can gobble you up and be so demanding that there is nothing else in the world but the job of the moment. I've been there so many times, and it is a destructive thing. He talks about being first call. Yeah. Um, and so can you describe, is that sort of a high pressure, you know, if you're first call, or is it more of like um, it's it's an achievement you've made that, I guess I wonder if like when you get to be first call on the, on the sheet, is that like people get possessive of that? Like... Um, you would do anything to sort of keep that position? Uh, yes and no. Okay. I've seen some uh, prima donna first chair people. And I've seen people uh, 
who are very confident in their achievement and in their position and are really great and they're just everyday Charlies um, so and and that's already as far as the pressure is concerned every musician will feel some sort of a pressure on every gig because you have to be perfect you've got to nail it um, and so the pressure is in many different degrees I don't I think you'd be lying if you showed up at a session and say, I'm not worried at all. I have no butterflies in my stomach and I can <laughs> nail this and walk away and have a sandwich. You know, there is some degree, some degree of, of you know, a pressure to do it right. And yeah. you, you don't want to be the guy in the middle of a f- eight minute queue that makes a clam at about the seven minute part. You know, uh, yeah. you've got to stop and go all, all the way back and redo it or punch in or something. But yeah. you're, ooh, that's not good. No. So <laughs> there's an anxiety all the way through of, of keeping you at, on your on your tiptoes, making sure you're absolute 100%, 100% concentration and doing the gig that's demanded of you. Wow. Now, um, can you talk, I guess, in terms of personal stories, your your background as as a composer and um, and also your time in, in the industry uh, a little bit? Like, when did you... You said you came out here in 78? In yeah, I was... Um, I went to Berkeley College of Music. Okay. As a vibes player. Uh, oh. I studied with Gary Burton. And um, they, I, I did the uh, an accelerated course uh, four years and three. And then they turned around and asked me to teach there. Wow. So I did that for four years before I moved here. Um, Gary and I shared an office. It was great for me because he was on the road most of the time. <laughs> um, so I taught a lot of arranging and composition and came out here and immediately got work as a copyist because that's what put me through school. Right. Doing a lot of copy work for Gary, for example, and other people. And worked on the... John Davidson Singer Workshop in Catalina Island for the first summer. I just almost got off the plane and got the gig. Boom. <laughs> and that opened all kinds of doors. More copy work blocked, worked in lots of offices. Through uh, one of them, it was cool music. I, um, we are One of our clients was Andy Williams. And then oh. it got to a point where he wanted some arrangements done, and I was there, the handy guy who could do those. So I was asked to do some arranging and he liked that and I so I arranged for Andy for about two two and a half years oh wow okay you know and that was a kind of a golden job because Andy worked the Las Vegas he worked the Pops symphonic gigs and he did supper clubs so I had to do three arrangements in a sense or let's say three orchestrations the rhythm section was always the same um and the strings would be the same from the Vegas to the symphonic pops. And then I'd have to do a reduced version for, I forget what it was, maybe three or four horns plus rhythm okay. on the uh, Supper Club stuff. But it was still a good, uh, a good j- uh, paying job in that respect because I did have to generate three versions in a sense. That led to other things. I... Um, Let's see, I got the job uh, orca- uh, just copying at Universal as mm-hmm. a side guy. Um, and then there, someone else took over, and then I was asked to take over. Okay. And so it was sort of a long uh, process of personnel. To, they finally asked me to uh, uh, head up the office, which I didn't want because I wanted to be a writer, a composer, a right. and all that. Because a copyist uh, sometimes uh, can't. 
shake that stigma of being a copyist. Once you're on that road of being a copyist, it's hard to jump freeways, I guess, in, in a way. And... I, I've seen the same thing with orchestrators. Oh, he's, oh, he can't compose. He's only an orchestrator. You know, wow. Or it's, it's, we have all kinds of little pockets that people put people into, and, and you can't get out of those. And wow. So many times I was able to let, not let the left hand know what the right hand was doing. You know, <laughs> and, uh, uh, Gary Burton called me for a big uh, Buffalo Philharmonics concert pops concert he did and i wrote that whole concert oh wow or i should say arranged and then wrote two pieces of my own um so as as i was working at universal more jobs started to come in mm -hmm. i did some orchestrations uh, for randy edelman i um uh, it was during while i was a copyist that uh actually joanne kane recommended me to shirley walker and that turned into the Batman job. That's oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Wow, I was curious yeah. to know, like, because uh, you know, for I've read a lot being a huge fan of Shirley Walker and also that show. How she kind of gathered together her uh, Justice League in a way of composers, and uh, she set the template, and she kind of was the fearless leader. Yeah, she. I don't think there's anybody like her, or hasn't been anyone like her, because she gave a lot of people. A big chance. Yeah, um, a lot of experience. She uh, she had she hired a lot of different people to come in and write. First of all, just do some orchestration for mm -hmm. her on the shows, and then if you pass that, you were able to write a cue or a half a show with someone else. Mm -hmm. If you pass that, you got a full show. A real I, mentorship kind of. Oh, it was. Yeah, and, and it was a, just pure gold. Um, I. I, I, I shared a show with Lars Clutterham, and then I did two more of my own. So that was Underdwellers, I think you shared? Underdwellers. Yeah, and then I think the two on your own appointment in Crime Alley and Almost Got Him. Yeah. Oh God, those are two of my favorites. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to mention, like, when I saw Appointment in Crime Alley, when it broadcast, I guess it was 93, I think, because the show started in 92. The music for that show stood out so much, and I had already was loving what was what I was hearing in those episode scores. Um, but your your unique theme just for that episode that you you know that reoccurs uh, through the the train the trolley chase sequence and and, and everyone is so memorable and so uh, it, it's it's just it's da -da -da, yep. Da -da -da, oh. Thank you. 
Yeah. And <laughs> you, you work through so many different permutations, yeah, yeah. Uh, which, you know, your arranging work comes into play with that. Um, and uh, and then with Almost Got Him, uh, you did such great, I mean, scoring as well, the the scenes, the dramatic scenes, but also your source music, your, your big band jazz. I think that's why Shirley gave me that show, because I came from a jazz background. You see, I, oh. I was the, the bob head of the group and coming from Berkeley, you know, and... Uh, in fact, when That's I first amazing. moved out here, I was so much of a jazzer that uh, I, I didn't have much patience for, for anything else. I, I, and it took me a long time to uh, turn turn around completely. And, and there was then a long fallow time that I didn't listen to any jazz at all. I actually couldn't handle it. Huh. Because I was just so so sick of it, I guess. <laughs> so things after the dust all settled. I, I Yeah, I did that uh, show uh, because I was... That was one of my strengths, is the jazz. And so that was, we did all the underscore first and then dismissed the orchestra and kept um, uh, Emily Bernstein on clarinet and uh, a trumpet player. I th- uh, there might have been a sax player and then the rhythm section uh-huh. to do the jazz stuff. Wow. Because the show takes place, it opens in a club. Right. And there's the, uh, all the, the Batman's enemies are sitting around a table, each bragging about how each one of them almost got him. Yeah. And there's a, a you hear in the underscore. I mean, the, well, the background music is a jazz. It, it, there's I don't remember if we actually saw them, the musicians. I don't think so. But you, everything you, is in a shadow. Club. It's in a club, them. and you yeah. hear the jazz. You, you know, there's a combo there somewhere yep. playing these tunes. And so I had to write all these tunes, and that was an absolute hoot. The players loved it. They said, "We're getting paid for a jazz gig here." <laughs> How much time did you have to write each of those so that for the solo episodes, I guess, how much time did you have to write uh, the music for those? Uh, I think it was a, it was, uh, something tells me it's been a long time. That's true. It was yes. less than, a, less than a week. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I think we'd spot something like on a Friday with Bruce, Tim, mm-hmm. for example, and Shirley. No, Shirley, was, was she there? And then spot the show and then. I was sent the notes over the weekend, mm-hmm. and I'd write, and we scored on the following Friday. Okay, I think that's kind of how it went. But and are you scoring to early animation? Or are you scoring to storyboards? Um, no, I I had a uh, I, I had a print. Okay, and uh, my, there might be holes, they're blank, but the timing was all there. Okay, you know, you'd see a, a, like a. Um, a a marker saying that, uh, or, a, or a 
what's it called? A, 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 oh, like punches and streamers? Yeah, well, all that was there, yes. But there'd be uh, something uh, taking the place of footage, just a still that says oh, okay. something goes here, but keep counting, you know. Got it. <laughs> and um, so in that, well, he, the editor, he was running the Oracle. Hmm. I don't know if you remember the Oracle. Uh, Vaguely. Which is the... the uh, it was the streaming software. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. It ran the, that ran the clicks, and the punches in the stream. But we would each composer had to build that. We, oh. had, we had so my very first show, I had to go out and buy a brand new computer because I just had a laptop at the time. I bought a computer. I bought. Um, I bought what was the software? I, oh, I bought the Digital Performer. Okay. And I had to buy the Oracle, and its software. And I had to learn all that in my first week of writing the show. Oh, geez. And so the first thing uh, I do is uh, build a, the click track and, and the, the bones of the of the of the cue itself. Mm-hmm. I know where the uh, let's say this would be a, a, a fermata or something, maybe four free into the next phrase, how it starts and how it ends, and then start writing to fill in the blanks. Mm-hmm. And that would run the sequencer that I was writing in. You were still writing pen to paper, though. Yes, but I'd have to create a a, a map of the uh, the uh, the click track and such to, and I wouldn't put music into it. Uh, I I don't remember at this point. I might have been putting in something. I had to have been, uh, but I had to turn in handwritten scores. Okay. But I must have been putting something in uh, in the computer into performer just just to hear it. And, and get an idea of what is going where. And did you feel pretty inspired? Like when you got the gig, was it anything that you went into with preconceived notions of, well, this is what the show... I mean, obviously, Shirley Walker kind of gave everyone the sound style of the show. What I was always impressed with was how consistent everybody was for being, you know, you've got your own different personalities and, and approaches, and, and but it, it there's a consistency overall. Um, well, she originally told us all that this is going to be scored like a live action film it's not a cartoon right folks it's not a cartoon (laughs) this is going to be dark (laughs) score it dark and uh, be make it a serious thing and yes there were some light moments here and there of course to as when it was needed but we treated it as a live action film and that was pretty much all I remember hearing and then, I think, as I listen to uh, uh, Lolita's and, and McQuishan's and Carl's, and the, the, the final team who mm-hmm. ended up doing all of the, a lot of the work, yeah. and still do it, do they have their own company? Yeah. Um, I, I could hear each personality, and Shirley, and uh, mine, and, and others, Harvey, they all had their own little... Yeah. Signature, their so whatever stamp that differentiated them, but overall, I could hear this common thread, this ethic that Shirley had. Yeah, they're still instilled in us. That, yeah, you know, they're, they're the overriding sound stamp is there, but each of you have your own quirks. Um, whether it's the structure of the cue or whether it is the structure yeah. of the melody or something, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just really amazing that it's still so much high quality work. I mean, it's still one of the best. Not only one of the best scored animated series of it of all time, but one of the best scored shows, I think, of all time. <laughs> it was uh, a unique show. Uh, we had a thirty-six piece orchestra. 
Okay, I've like, always wondered, I, yeah, yeah, how many members a, you had in that orchestra, and if it, if yeah. did it vary much? Not that I know of. Okay, I think it was pretty much that. That was the standard. Okay, band, and then they would add as needed. For example, at the when we dismissed the orchestra on almost got him and kept the rhythm section for the jazz pieces. Mm-hmm. They, they called in a jazz bass player. Oh, okay. Because the, uh, what was it? Two? I think there were two players in the orchestra. Uh, section that were legit people. Okay. Um, but they surely wanted to make sure, and, and, and you know, it, the bass can make or break the jazz sound. <laughs> and so she brought in a separate. They're the real guy heartbeat. Who, 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 uh, who really nailed it for that style. That seemed a lot of fun. I, I yeah, it's it's uh, it, was it fun also to kind of write that um, for for such a, an orchestra that broadly as far as melodically or or even rhythmically, I guess was it? Oh, it was a playground. Yeah. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, it, it's 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 amazing, and it is kind of it's great that they that you know there there was such talented composers working on that show that then continued on to the mm-hmm. other shows, and it's, sure. you guys really seem to have. You also seem to like each other as people. Oh yeah, you have to, and and, and Shirley is not going to go out and pick a jerk, for example. No, I mean, it's it all really started with Shirley, and she she was the core and formed a wonderful team. Yeah, yeah. there was a oh gosh, there was a, a, a it might have it might have been almost got him, or it might have been the show before that. I'd written the entire show uh, except the last cue. Mm-hmm. Everything was had been sent off messenger, picked up the, the scores, ran them to Warner Brothers. The copyists had already done the parts. There, the show was booked up, and here it was, let's say, Thursday night at midnight. I had the one last cue to do. And I was just going to take it in with me, which I did, you know, but I was going to take it in with me the next morning and give it to uh, the copyists. And they would, while we were doing the whole front of the show, they'd mm-hmm. do this last one and bring it in. And we'd do it. So there's no big deal with it happens all the time. Composers working the night before, mm-hmm. and however, I hit a wall. I was dried up, totally vacant. Wow! I did not have an idea in my head, and I was also exhausted. And I was I had mapped it out. I knew from the the Oracle software I'd mapped out the the, the timings and the, the uh, time signatures all that stuff and there was this all these score pages empty score pages but the bars were there it was numbered and the, the clicks were in and all that but it was just a sh- empty shell and i was totally fried wow and i'm looking at that and i i say gosh i don't know what i'm going to do uh, i i'm i'm used up <laughs> and i fleetingly toyed with the idea of going to LAX and getting the next plane to anywhere. <laughs> but then I realized that 
the earth turns. I can't stop that. Right. Tomorrow, 10 o'clock downbeat, we'll be here. And tomorrow, this score will have all, it will be full of notes. So I just have to get from here to there. So in a sense, I pictured myself in the future. I went up and then came back down and saw myself conducting. And that score was filled in. Hmm. And once I realized its potential that it will be a fact in the future, mm-hmm. that's unleashed something. And I went right to the score and I just wrote it out. Wow. The ideas just flowed out of me. So it was uh, an amazing revelation, if you would call it a meditation, I don't know, um, which I've used ever since. If a, a drudgery, a ty- kind, of, kind of a job I'm in the middle of, and I just can't wait to get it done. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, 11 in the morning, and I know that evening I'll be sitting down to a nice, wonderful meal, maybe with a glass of wine, and the job will be done. That's how I, I mentalize. Wow. And I just picture myself, okay, the job's done. Why beat myself up? And I just keep going. And it, it just it unlocks something where I can just yeah. flow through it easily. Even weeding, a, sitting in the backyard weeding. It takes some of the I look around, oh, apprehension. Like, I, there's no way in hell I can get all these weeds done. <laughs> but no, in two hours they'll be gone. <laughs> oh, okay. So I, yeah. Well, that 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 score is all, appointment in Crime Alley is also like I said, his favorite. It's, it's a beautiful score. I mean, it's it's it has you know it's moments of, of high action, but also some some beautiful you know moments, especially towards the end with that. I think the the the. Uh, the, the people that are going to be kicked out of their their building oh, um, right. yeah right. and uh, but it's it's a wonderfully scored episode as were all the episodes that uh, that you worked on Thank so, you. yeah great stuff um, but it's I, I that kind of leads me into the next topic because you, you as far as like you're not just scoring other projects um, but you, you know because I think I, I had read that you you worked on there was a, a pilot called The Ore, I think. Is that correct? That Was, was that a, a, a sci-fi? Yeah, yeah. My, it was written and directed by my son. Okay. He's got his own film company. Sam, Sam uh, Balcom. And his company is Rainfall Films. Okay. And he wrote this, I think it was a 20-minute piece mm-hmm. that... He shopped to the Sci-Fi Channel, which they loved, and they then so Sci-Fi UK wanted to do it. So I scored it, and um, it kind of disappeared. Mm-hmm. And then later, I heard that they were going to split it up into a couple of Irish and Scottish companies. Or I'm not quite sure if, if that's even the same project, but things like that happened. It was on. It was a go again, but then okay. it fell through and never happened. But uh, it, it, it's a wonderful story that has an ending that sets up an, a whole series potential. Wow. And that's what Sci-Fi liked about it.
Yeah, that's everybody wants some sort of long-running right, franchise right. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I mean, hopefully that there's still that is there's still life. I hope so it. too. It was it's a great concept. Um, I also was amused at uh, one of the projects you had worked on with your son was the uh, I think it was the a fake trailer for the Legend of Zelda. Uh, <laughs> did you see that? I did. I did watch that. Really neat production values on that. That was one of his early projects. And um, he, gosh, I forget when it was. It feels like it might have been 2005, 6 or 7, somewhere okay. around there. He said, uh, you know, I've, got, I've had this idea. Why don't we do a, a movie trailer for a game that hasn't been done yet? And they, Sam chose Le- Legend of Zelda. Yeah, I mean, because it gives him a real Lord of the Rings style uh, playground, I guess that, or at least visually, it, it 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 kind of fits within that fantasy. So uh, he did, and I scored it, and it was released on April Fool's Day. Again, I forget the year, and it pretty much broke the internet. I mean, it went absolutely on fire, and people were going totally crazy. And then things people started to think, wait a minute, it's April Fool's Day. Uh, is this real or isn't it? And they couldn't find any other supporting evidence on the Internet. And so they started to you know, realize, you know, this is a joke. But my God, I've been waiting all my life for this film. And uh, it's not going to happen yet. Oh, my gosh. And they were heart, heart oh, broken. Oh, jeez. And, and as far as like other, yeah, and thinking of like other um, artistic endeavors, um, I wanted to... Um, I wanted to ask you also about uh, another one that you've got going on uh, called the Scream Online. Um, so this is a an e zine, I guess. A, yes. Yeah. It's um, uh, the Scream is was uh, uh, influenced by Munch's famous painting, The mm-hmm. Scream, mm-hmm. and that to me epitomizes the angst and frustration, let's say, of a composer or an artist or a writer getting a record deal. Or a uh, gallery, uh-huh. you see, or um, uh, a publishing deal, and so I was going to provide a, a, a format for people who were excellent to have their work viewed on the internet. Yeah, because stream you, online, and you go through all these different you know arenas because you have photography, you have fiction, you have nonfiction, mm-hmm. poetry, mm-hmm. Uh, film, and music. There's even an article in there on uh, composer uh, Bear McCreary, mm-hmm. um, and and you you really run the gamut. Uh, yeah, it uh, the film and music I think was added later. Okay, it used to be art, photography, and literature. Okay. And the literature encompassing fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. It, it, it's not always just about the composer and his work, like Bear's article, for mm-hmm. example. Um, I did. Um, oh gosh, uh, who's uh, who's the composer who originally did Troy? And, uh, Gabriel Yared or yes, James Horner? Okay. Yared, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so he did. He he got bumped off the film. It's unfortunate, see. but yeah. yes. Oh yeah. Um, but he had written this wonderful article about that. Oh. And so I published that. Oh, I have to find so that. That's, and then, uh, so I have sometimes musicians writing about music, or I'll be featuring their work, mm-hmm. or uh, something that they wouldn't normally do. It's just a pet project, that kind of thing. Um, and and you've also, you know, you've contributed as well. I know that uh, you've, you've, like you said, you've, you've uh, grew up in such an artistic environment with all these different, you know, um, skill sets and everything that, and 
you you're kind of branching out into other areas even outside of uh, music is that uh, is that correct to, to say like as far as writing or um, oh uh, yeah I've always been a, a lover of the word or the written word yeah. and I've got I'm I've contributed fiction to the magazine mm-hmm. I've written all the art editorials mm-hmm. um, I've got a screenplay uh, I've got a short screenplay done. I, I want to produce it. Okay. I've uh, got uh, a novel I've been working on for forever. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, yeah, yeah there's, I w- there's I wonder never a dull I... moment around here. That's good. No, because yeah. I, I, I was curious to know like what your current you know projects are, um, and I obviously you've, you're you've, you're kind of juggling a lot. Yeah. At, at the moment. Well, cur- currently I'm I'm still wearing an old copyist hat. I'm helping Disney <laughs> out on a project. Oh, okay. And then I'm uh, going to be orchestrating for Nicholas Pike. Okay. On, on uh, so I think it's next month. Uh, he's. Uh, we, I worked on the first uh, film of this. It's it's the I am Spock. Oh did you right. See that? Yes, I did. Yeah. yeah. It's about Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. And so there's, they're putting out another one. Oh okay. And so we'll be scoring that in uh, August. Oh, that's fantastic. So I've got that coming up. If uh, if anyone interested wanted to check you out online, do you have a social media presence or? Uh... I'm I'm off Facebook now. The account is still there, but I've decided in this day and age because almost everything is political. I just had to take out a lot of the negativity in my life. So yeah. People can get a hold of me on contact forums at uh, stuartbalcom.com. Okay. You can hear my music there at amphoraeditions.com that's right. a publishing company and thescreenonline.com and amphora A-M-P-H-O-R-A yes. right okay yeah. thanks very much Stuart thank you So this wraps up my conversation with composer Stuart Balcom. I'd like to again thank Stuart for participating and sharing his background and his experiences and stories from working in the industry as a copyist, orchestrator, and composer, uh, plus also information about his publishing work. You can find his website at stuartbalcom.com. There's also his easing devoted to a variety of artistic endeavors at the Scream Online. And also check out uh, his publication of Artie Kane's memoir, Music to My Ears, Uh, available from Amphora Editions. And of course, I want to thank everyone for listening today. As always, I hope you found it both entertaining and informative. Uh, Music heard in today's episode included excerpts from uh, The Return of Wonder Woman, uh, an episode of the 1977 Wonder Woman series, music by Artie Kane. Um, Music by Stuart Balcom in this episode uh, was from the following episodes of Batman, the animated series, The Underdwellers, Appointment in Crime Alley, and Almost Got Him. And there was also music from the sci-fi pilot The Orb by Stuart Balcom. If you'd like to send any comments or questions to the show, uh, you can email me at a score to settle podcast at gmail.com. Find the blog at a score to settle.blogspot.com and also on Facebook at facebook.com slash a score to settle. And lastly on Twitter at score to settle pod. It's the number two, score to settle pod. If you listen to the show by way of iTunes, feel free to leave a rating and a review. That's always appreciated. Thanks again for listening.